Welcome to the Alien Burford Mason podcast. I'm Gavin McGarry here in Los Angeles. Today's episode is about sleep. What is missing from your diet that affects your sleep? Welcome, Aileen. Hi, Gavin. Good to be here again. Now, Aileen, most adults I know really struggle with sleep. Uh, what does diet have to do with sleep? Short answer, everything. Oh, no. Um, we've talked before about the approach, the nutritional approach to health problems. And I think sleep is really a good example of how differently we could approach our health issues, either through pharmaceuticals, uh, through other natural products like herbs, or through nutrition. Mm-hmm. So if you come to me and you say, you know, if, if you don't, you can't sleep, have you been to your doctor? Yes, the doctor offered me one of two or three different choices, but I, I, I really don't want to try the pharmaceutical route. I'd like something more natural, you might say. Mm-hmm. So then you may have a friend who's been to a herbalist, and the herbalist has said, oh, there's a concoction of herbs I can make up. It'll have hops and valerian and passion flower. And so your friend has slept well using a herbal, herbal product or herbal teas. These are medicines. They're much gentler medicines, but they are not solving the problem. They're getting around the problem. So if you come to somebody like me, I would say, what chemical pathways need to be completed for the brain to put itself to sleep? What is the natural process? And what nutrients are involved in that pathway? So the very first thing we think of is protein. One of the amino acids, uh, tryptophan in protein, is the building block for serotonin. Mm -hmm. And serotonin becomes melatonin, which gives us that deep, refreshing sleep. Oh, okay. Now, the thing about tryptophan is that it's the least plentiful amino acid in protein food. And it has a hard job getting into the brain. So it has to compete with all the other amino acids that are much more plentiful. So it more or less gets sidelined and and, and shunted out of the way. Except if there's one trick we've learned about how to get tryptophan into our brain, we don't realize we're using a trick. And that is if we have something sweet at the same time, something like the cookie you had with your milk before bed when you were a child, that cookie will spike a bit of insulin, and insulin is a storage hormone. And it takes all the other amino acids away to muscles for storage and for rebuilding. It isn't able to bind uh, tryptophan. Mm. So that means all the competition has disappeared, and now tryptophan has a free run at getting into the brain. Okay, And so that's why... Even during the day, sometimes uh, we use that trick um, because serotonin itself is calming. And suppose during the working day, you have a, a tough day, everything's going wrong, or you have a, a colleague you don't get on with or a boss. And what does your brain turn to? I think I'll go to the coffee room and have a cookie and raid the cookie jar, or I'll, I'll, I'll buy myself a candy bar. And so this is a sort of learned trick we have. I grew up in Ireland, um, and we would have as children 
warm milk and honey to go to bed. Um, now, I think there are other ways. You don't have to have the warm milk and honey, but I think you do have to make sure that there is sufficient tryptophan. People who eat a low-protein diet, which of course we've talked about before, that this is not desirable, may not have enough circulation tryptophan uh, going to bed at night. So you're, you're saying that maybe vegetarians or people that have a low-protein diet uh, would may have more issues around sleeping? Uh, I don't think necessarily vegetarians. It's just you do have to have protein in the evening. People who sometimes, uh, for one reason or other, don't eat properly one evening, they often find that because they haven't had a proper meal, that they don't sleep properly. But you see, once you get the tryptophan into the brain, there are all these other nutrients that are evolved. So tryptophan becomes something called 5-hydroxytryptophan, 5-HTP, mm -hmm. and that in turn becomes serotonin. Serotonin in turn becomes melatonin. So for that chemical pathway, there are a number of vitamins and minerals involved. So the big one, if you're short of magnesium, it's very difficult to sleep because mm -hmm. magnesium is needed big time. Um, so is uh, um, iron, the B vitamins, vitamin C. All of these are involved in the pathway. So at least one would hope that people were taking a good quality multivitamin um, and that might help again with sleep. Is it better to take the multivitamin closer to the end of the day then? It, it might be, yes. If you, if you didn't have, uh, most of the people I'm working with have, you know, quite a cocktail of vitamins and minerals that they're taking. Some they take in the morning, some they take in the evening. And generally they take their multivitamins in the morning. Um, and, but they would take things like magnesium always. Uh, late in the day. Now, you gave me um, some magnesium, uh, like a cream that I could rub on the inside of my... Yeah. What, what's, what's that? Does that help? Well, there are topical forms of magnesium. One of the things that some people are intolerant of magnesium because magnesium relaxes muscles oh. and the bowel is a muscle. And so if they have difficulty, if they ha tend towards diarrhea, um, then they may find that they can't take a lot of magnesium because it'll make it worse. So you can bypass the gut altogether by using, there's many, many products on the market now um, that are topical forms of magnesium that you can, usually I get people to use it on their inner arms where there's a lot of blood vessels close to the surface. And... Um, on their legs, if they have things like sometimes people's sleep is disturbed by something called restless legs. And so that may help if you use the lotion or cream on uh, on the legs before bed. Okay. Um, I guess uh, just a quick follow-up question. So is it like I don't drink milk or honey or have a cookie before bed, but should I be considering that because of what you just Not necessarily. It depends on whether you're sleeping or not. You know, um, if you're sleeping fine, no problem. Um, you don't, this isn't compulsory. And there are many supplements that people will use uh, and not need uh, the glass of milk. In fact, you know, we do think going to bed with, you know, food that you've just ingested 
may not be the best thing, but it's not a large glass of milk, you know, a small glass of milk. Um, and whole milk, right? Like you, you not like a 2% or a 1% or do you do? Well, like as we talk, I don't think that is relevant to sleep, but I don't uh, think, you know, um, fat reduced milk is a good idea anyway. Oh, okay. Great. But, and so it's, it's a little bit like you, you talked about the milk and honey. I'm just, I'm just thinking about that, you know, to have that when you were a young kid, you had milk and, and yeah. honey. Um, I'm just wondering, I, I might try it. I mean, I, I sleep pretty well. Um, but I, I just thought it might be something. And if, if we wanted to substitute the milk, what would, what would you suggest? Um, well, you know, th- th- really, I can't think of much in the way of, of maybe a, a, a protein bar, um, but okay. there are not many good quality protein bars out there. Um, but, you know, you, some people I do know that I've, you know, dis- explained this to, if they have a night of poor sleeping and they wake up and can't go back to sleep, they will get up and make themselves a small glass of warm milk and a bit of honey That's- and do find that it will help them go back to sleep. Now, but not a bowl of cereal and milk, because <laughs> there's, I know a few people that eat a bowl of cereal before they go to bed or have like something that has, that seems to have a high sugar. I mean, you, you told us in one of the episodes that basically having a bowl of cereal is like having a bowl of sugar. Exactly. So, and, you know, the thing is, you know, there, there's a conflict here where we think it's not a good idea to be eating late in the evening, that you have dinner and you finish and then you don't eat until the next morning when you have breakfast and that so basically you know we're just trying to manipulate the brain chemistry and it can be done but it's not my favorite way of getting people to sleep there's many other things to consider before that um to ensure are in place before you go to bed and I guess the milk and cereal wouldn't be too bad if you just had a small amount of cereal because that's like the milk and cookie. It's the yeah, little bit yes. of sugar and the exactly. milk. I think what I think what you you've sort of expressed to me in the past is that people have a big bowl of cereal and milk, and that's yeah. that's that's probably worse. Th- right. th- you sent me some great information about how big a problem poor sleep is, and uh, some data on the centers f- uh, from the CDC uh, around um, around sleep. Did you want to talk a bit about that? Well, I, I think it's there's concern because it's a huge and, and growing problem, uh, people having difficulty sleeping. Well, we have two things to think about. People who can't sleep and those people we can talk about who actually intentionally uh, short sleep. But those who can't sleep, one in three adults in America is complaining about not being able to sleep properly. Mm-hmm. That's huge. That, that, that's almost everybody. And do you think it's, sorry to interrupt, do you think it's diet related? Is this something that, have, have humans always had a problem sleeping or is it just our new, these crazy, you know, diets that we have now that are full of, um, you know, uh, re- not great food, like food that's not, that we've talked about in other podcasts? I think it's much more complex than that. It's food, it's exercise, it's being sedentary during the day, it's light pollution, um, you know, our ancestors would have slept when it got dark and they would have uh, just been tired from a day's hunting and gathering or whatever. So they would probably be physically tired. They would fall asleep easily. 
and there would be no light pollution because light pollution is a huge issue in keeping us awake because it signals, light is a signal to wake up. Mm. So uh, you can imagine a caveman, um, you know, and he's asleep in his cave. He doesn't have a locked front door. Mm. And as soon as it got light, that's a dangerous time. That's when the animals are out that might be looking for uh, food and drink. Um, that's when someone might decide to catch someone unawares uh, asleep and take over their whatever, th their, their cave. Yep. So it would have been a dangerous time. And so as soon as light falls on closed eyelids, it sends a signal through um, the, to the brain to say, it's time to wake up. It's time to wake up. You shouldn't be asleep. Now, that gets very confusing if, like uh, myself, you live in the middle of a city where the actual light pollution from streetlights is very similar to early dawn. Mm. And, you know, people will go away here. Many people have cottages and they'll say, I never sleep as well as I do when I'm at the cottage because right. it's pitch dark. And then a little bit of light comes up and they know it's going to be dawn, early dawn. That light sky is very similar to the sky in a city where there are streetlights on all the time. So people who sleep with their uh, curtains open, hmm. uh, people who have a skylight in their bedroom, mm -hmm. uh, they will constantly be disturbed by light pollution. So, I mean, you've spoke, spoken to me about this offline and, uh, you know, I've darkened my rooms. And so do you suggest by using like blackout curtains or things like that? Yeah, well, even blackout curtains, you know, you go to a hotel to, to stay and they have these fabulous blackout curtains, but then there's light coming under the door from the corridor and there's maybe machines blinking with various lights on. That interferes. We have very good evidence that it's a tiny amount of light pollution. And even if you have your curtains drawn, if there's a little bit of light coming around uh, the edge, uh, you know, you, that can interfere. Um, there's one, you know, we've, we've talked, I know, about uh, the health effects of not sleeping. Uh -huh. And one of the things we know is there's an increased risk of cancer. And uh, so... There was one study done in animals. It was the first one that alerted me to this problem of light pollution. And they were concerned that usually animals in a research facility are in the basement. There's no windows. It's pitch dark. So the usual light dark cycle for uh, a lab rat is uh, 12 hours on, 12 hours off. Uh, so what they did was they had a group of animals that had that cycle, 12 hours light and 12 hours pitch dark, absolute dead dark. Then they had another group where they kept the light on the whole time. They slept, but they kept the light on the whole time. But they had a third group where they had 12 hours dark and 12 hours light. But during the dark period, they left the door open into the corridor with a little bit of light coming through. Uh -huh. So once they acclimatized the animals to these conditions, they then introduced cancer cells into their uh, peritoneum. And they looked to see how many tumors 
and how fast those tumors were growing. In the animals that had 12 hours dark, pitch dark, and 12 hours light, they were very few tumors evolved and they were slow growing. In the animals that slept with the light on all the time, they grew very fast and there were many tumors. But the ones that had just the crack of light coming in from the corridor were nearly as bad as the ones that slept with the light on all the time. So it's just that signal that our ancestors would have had. The sun is rising, the sky is a tiny bit lighter. I know it's going to be daytime soon. So, so just, just to recap, so blackout curtains are really important, but not with light coming, a little bit of light coming around. It has to be completely blacked out. Otherwise, well, the, the simple solution, Gavin, is to buy an eye mask. Um, I recommend everybody sleeps with an eye mask. I, I've tried. I can't. Uh, I, I do it if, if I'm on a plane, but I can't do it in my bed because sometimes I sleep on my front and the mask comes off and then it's like halfway around my head. It's a mess. <laughs> you, want to, you want to get a good one. I yeah. had one client who had such a change in his sleep when he learned how to wear an eye mask and he went away on business to Ottawa and forgot his eye mask. Oh no. And he was so desperate that he cut the neck off a roll neck sweater <laughs> and, and put it around his eyes so he could sleep. Uh, <laughs> so once you get used to it, it's like something you can't sleep without. Uh, some of the other data you sent me before I get into the next one, nearly 40% of adults report falling asleep during the day without meaning to mm-hmm. um, at least once a month. Uh, and also an estimated 50 to 70 million Americans have chronic or ongoing sleep disorders. Apart from making us, I guess, feel bad and underperforming during the day, you know, what are some of the other consequences of poor sleep? And I don't really want to spend a lot of time here. I think a lot of people know that not having enough sleep is uh, bad for them. I just don't think people know exactly how much sleep they should be getting. And then, you know, and, and what some of, I mean, from your perspective, what are some of the really, you know, poor, uh, bad consequences of poor sleep? Well, you know, yes, chronic uh, sleep deprivation is a well-proven risk factor for heart disease, diabetes, cancer, etc. Um, and also, it's, there's a higher risk of injury the next day. Oh. Uh, we, we, if we are short of sleep, um, we are clumsier. We are more likely to have minor accidents um, and injure ourselves. So sleepiness while driving is called drowsy driving now. Is uh, you know considered as big a problem as as driving with alcohol. What about sleeping with other people? There is some t- talk that you know that you know. P- you know, obviously couples um, sleep together. Um, is is that is it better to sleep apart to get a really good sleep? Do you, do you have any information on that? There's no data that I know about, but I know, you know, uh, sort of anecdotally that there are many couples that will get to a point of saying we need separate rooms, um, especially if one partner snores or is very restless in bed. And those people who are very restless in bed are usually magnesium deficient. Okay. Um, you should, when you go to sleep, you should be resting. You should be quiet. And sort of moving around a lot in your sleep um, is, is often a sign of, of nutritional deficiencies. So I think, you know, in practice, 
people do separate um, either into separate beds um, and many of the sort of double beds now are actually two beds if you, you sort mm-hmm. of somebody moving around is not making your bed move around so but then things like snoring are a big issue for some people and it is interfering with their sleep I have some friends who say that they can get by on very little sleep. And I remember when I was younger, I'm like, ah, you can sleep when you're dead. You know, I only need four <laughs> hours of sleep. Yeah. Um, are, are they just, I mean, I, I sort of knew that I was fooling myself uh, <laughs> because it builds up over time. And I think even someone like Bill Clinton mentioned that he wished he'd, you know, spent more time sleeping. I think that it's been a big movement in, 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 in recently anyway. Are people just fooling themselves if they think that they, they can't get enough, that they can exist on very little sleep? I, I often see people who, who are very hard workers and come home late from the office, they have a late dinner, and then they feel entitled to some downtime so they don't go to bed till fairly late. But now they want to be up early in the morning to work out before they start work again. And so they think that they're doing okay. And many people will say, I get by on four ounces or five five hours of sleep. And no, they're not okay. It is a very big risk for dementia. And in fact, it's interesting to me that two famous politicians, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, both boasted all the time that they could get by on four ounces. Four, four ounces, why do I say that? <laughs> You said it twice. I, I was going to correct I, you. I wish I was we like, could measure it in ounces. ounces. I'm like, I've never had nice. four ounces of sleep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you mean four, four hours. Four hours of sleep. And both of them ended up with dementia. So I think, you know, you cannot. One of the reasons for this we know now is that, uh, you know, all organs have a method of self-cleansing. If there's, you know leftover chemicals that need to be removed, etc. And that's really true, the brain's, the, the body's lymphatic system, the immune cells that go in and clear out the garbage. And for a long time, we couldn't find, there was no lymphatic system in the brain. So we couldn't understand how the brain would self-cleanse. And now, in some recent years, some smart researchers noticed that these cells of the immune system that are involved in clearing garbage out, they sneak in along blood vessel walls into the brain, and then they can clear out the garbage. Turns out that you can only do that when you're asleep. Hmm. So I think this is where the risk for Alzheimer's is, that the brain can either work and be working and, and awake, or it can be asleep and cleansing, doing the housekeeping. It can't do both. It can't work and, and be awake and also self-cleanse. So the more the the more you can tail your night's sleep, uh, the less opportunity to clear out the garbage that does build up over the course of the day. Now I know some people like I have I did my, you know, sleep test where you do, I think it's a I did a week and I mm-hmm. set no alarms and I went to bed at the same time and just felt when I woke up, like, you know, I did yep. the blackout room and, yep. and, and I need like seven hours and 15 minutes of sleep. And that's when, that's when I feel most comfortable, most rested, et cetera. Some people need more, some people need, like how much sleep is, an, is enough? Like how, how do we know, how do you define a good night's sleep? Well, we, we do know for sure that six hours or less has health consequences. 
even it's really interesting. People with no reason for pain, um, they've done some surveys where they just telephone surveys where they call people and said, how many hours did you sleep last night? And then they did this um, uh, uh, this uh, survey on pain, of the feeling of pain. And those people, even if they had no basic reason for the pain, like arthritis, they felt their body had more pain if they slept less than six hours. Mm. So there seems to be a cutoff point for sort of very noticeable health problems below six hours. Um, more than that, we, it seems to be the healthiest, and it does vary from person to person, between seven, eight and a half, round about there. Above nine, interestingly enough, there does that is linked to greater health issues, probably because there's some underlying problem in those individuals, such as causing them to sleep more. So, um, so if people tell me I need 10 hours sleep a night, yeah. I'm concerned about that. Um, I wonder what's going on. Um, but you will find your own. Um, some people have to be careful not to oversleep. So personally for myself, seven to eight hours is perfect. If I go eight and a half, two or three nights in a row, I can be sure then eventually I'll have a night where I find it difficult to sleep. Ah. So so some people, figuring out, just like you did, your own ideal sleep pattern, as long as you don't turn out with and say, oh, five hours is perfect for me because it's not perfect for anyone, I don't believe. I guess the follow-on question from that would be, is that is there are there differences in the amount of sleep that men and women need? Um, because I, I noticed that it seems that many of my female friends need a, or seem to say they need a lot more sleep. Is that is that something that it seems men don't need as much sleep or don't want as much sleep? Is is there are there differences between? I I don't think there is. I think that you know it's very individual whether you're male or female, mm. and and you figure out what's an ideal amount within that time frame of seven to eight and a half, maximum nine hours sleep. Um, so I think it's very individual. Okay, well, let's talk, uh, get back uh, sort of to the the diet and some of the chemicals around us sleeping. Like what makes us sleep? Is, is there, you know, I, I know that there's an internal body clock that we, that the, the circadian rhythm. Could you talk a little bit about that and how it relates back to diet? Yeah, well, we know that sleep is essential. You know, um, remember, uh, stories of during the depression where uh, people were trying to earn money and one of the the gimmicks that some of the stores in New York put on were having people dance for as long as they could before they fell asleep and it might be two days um, some of those were actually fatal um, you have to have sleep so what is it that triggers sleep uh, I've mentioned what triggers you waking up on that light, the, the signal. That's the internal body clock where uh, certain cues from our environment tell us wake up. But what causes us to actually fall asleep? There are many theories, but the most, uh, the, the best worked out one is as we work through the day, we're using up brain energy, um, ATP adenosine triphosphate. And when you use it up, it will have as a byproduct adenosine itself. 
And it's as the byproduct of using up energy builds up, as adenosine builds up, it reaches a certain point that triggers the need to sleep. And so it's interesting that both caffeine and alcohol interact with adenosine. So um, a small amount of alcohol will promote uh, adenosine buildup and will actually cause sleep. Uh, A larger amount will act against adenosine. It'll be an antagonist and therefore, and just as caffeine is, uh, will interfere with sleep. So there are, you know, mechanisms within the brain where the brain is switching from being awake to being asleep. Uh, so often people find that if they've used their brain hard, like for example, in my own life writing books, I was astonished when I started to write at how exhausting it could be. And you could write a paragraph and that was all, and you, all you want to do is sleep. Until I talked to other writers and they found exactly the same because you're using up so much brain energy, the adenosine is building up and that triggers the need to sleep. So I would write a paragraph and it might take me four hours and then I would sit down and I would fall asleep immediately. So uh, so we have mechanisms for waking up and falling asleep. Melatonin um, is really what there's a big link between that and the light exposure we were talking about because when light hits your closed eyelid then the signal goes through to a gland called the pineal gland in the center of the brain and the pineal gland will now be told to stop making melatonin so that's where the uh, the interruption of sleep is if there's light pollution so it's the production of melatonin, as I said, is uh, melatonin not only controls how well we sleep tonight, but it controls what we call circadian rhythms, whether we are going to sleep well tomorrow night. Circadian rhythms are rhythms of the body that happen on a regular basis. Um, so, you know, life, death, in sleep, wake, um, Pregnancy is a circadian rhythm as well. So basically, if you don't make melatonin tonight and you can be asleep but not producing melatonin uh, if there's light pollution, uh, then the possibility of not sleeping well the next night is higher. Mm. Can, I guess, taking a melatonin supplement substitute for your all, your body's own melatonin, natural uh, melatonin? Uh, Yes, because the melatonin that they produce um, in the laboratory is actually identical to the melatonin that our bodies make naturally. So it is possible that actually during COVID, so many people turned, they had sleep issues um, for for various reasons. I think there was higher stress, but there was also, I think, uh, they weren't working their brain so hard. And uh, so there were sleep issues. And so a lot of people did turn to melatonin and found it very useful. Um, so it can work. There are many things that I would want to put right before I tried melatonin. Mm-hmm. And by the way, if you are going to work with melatonin, you, you find your own personal needs. I get people to start with a low dose 
uh, say, three milligrams, and then go up very, very slowly, um, increase maybe every four or five days until you get the deep sleep that you're looking for. If it's melatonin, it's going to work for you. And it doesn't work for everybody. It works for some people. Mm. You know, the environment in which we sleep is extremely important. We've talked about light exposure. And I will tell you um, some studies that have been done on breast cancer. Um, they've been done on nurses who work shifts. So they're sleeping in the daytime, but it'll probably be you know, light coming through the curtains. The curtains may be drawn, but they're mm. sleeping during the daytime. If they work these uh, shifts, they do have a higher incidence of breast cancer compared to nurses who don't. Wow. So there is a, an increased risk of cancer, but it is the light pollution that we have to be careful of. The second thing is the temperature of the room in which we sleep. That's extremely important because our core body temperature has to drop for us to sleep. And that is, you know, something that people often sleep in a room that's too warm. So you want to find the, the temperature that is lower than what you would be comfortable with during the day uh, in order to sleep properly. In fact, many people here in the cold north, um, many people will tell you they love it when there's a really, really cold night and their room is bedroom is really cold and then uh, they put on plenty of blankets on the bed, they're warm and toasty in bed, but they sleep much better because mm -hmm. the general surrounding environment is cold. Um, another thing that is really very recent idea, and that is the weight of covers we have on us when we sleep. I, for one, when I came to Canada first, and in the summer, um, we had very hot nights with a lot of humidity. Um, and people would say, well, I don't sleep, no sh not even a sheet, you know, it's too much. And I couldn't sleep without some weight on top of me. So uh, with a comfortable cover where we have weight, uh, but not necessarily thickness, they're not necessarily very dense, they're weighted, um, it does seem to help with sleep. Particularly, uh, I'm finding people reporting their children who didn't have very good sleep were sleeping more soundly uh, with a weighted blanket. Whether that refers back to, you know, how infants love to be swaddled, whether they were tight in the womb before they were born, um, who knows? And, and, and the research really hasn't been done yet, but it's interesting. And if it works, well, use it. And I think you have some experience of, of, of using a weighted blanket. Uh, I mean, I've had a, I've had a, weight, a weighted blanket for the last year and, uh, I can and it's quite heavy actually. It's very heavy. I put it Is on this? and it's, yeah. it's, it's really good. Like I've noticed a big change in my sleep. It, it, it really helped and it, it, it feels a lot better. Um, so we just talked about room temperature being important, light exposure being important, uh, you know, weighted blankets you were just mentioning is important. If those don't help, um, what would you recommend uh, for natural sleep aids? Are there specific things that people can go to as we wind down here? Well, the first thing I have to say is every brain is unique. 
all our, I think our brains are as unique, one person from another, as our fingerprints are. And so the pathways to sleep uh, may be different in different people. So I work very closely with trying to understand in an individual what it is that may help, whether it's more magnesium, whether it's more tryptophan, etc. But on the other hand, there are certain things I think that anyone can try, and two very useful supplements that I have been that have had some good studies on recently, which I think anyone could try for themselves. One is L-theanine. Uh, a theanine is a unique amino acid because most amino acids are breakdown products of protein-rich foods, whereas theanine comes from tea. It's in black tea, it's in green tea, etc. And just drinking tea won't get enough of it because it'll be counteracted by the stimulants that are in tea. But what theanine does is it induces what we call alpha brain waves. Alpha brain waves are like meditation, where you're calm but alert. And that is the state you need to be in. We call it pre-sleep. Mm -hmm. You need to be in a state of calm like that. So theanine before bed, and for people who wake up in the middle of the night, there's no problem with waking up in the night as long as you go back to sleep. But if you wake up and then your brain starts whirring around and you can't go back to sleep, you can take another one when you wake. Mm -hmm. Now, the research is showing that together with a substance called GABA. Uh, GABA, G-A-B-A, stands for gamma aminobutyric acid. And the theanine, I should probably just interrupt and say that if people are listening, it's L-theanine, which is T-H-E-A-N-I-N-E. That's the theanine that you're talking about. Right. And I should add, uh, actually, Gavin, how safe it is. Um, it's been used in Japan for 60 years as a flavor enhancer. And so it's it's not designated the, the as... The theanine has. Yeah. Oh. In Japan, it's a food additive. Okay. So when we have something as a food additive, you're guaranteed its safety. I can give this to children as well as to adults in very similar doses. So you have theanine and then it works together with GABA. Uh, remember that a lot of people used benzos, the benzodiazepines, for sleep. And now we discover how damaging that was uh, because it's a really severe risk for dementia. And, and, and dangerous, apparently. They're extremely addictive. They're very addictive. And even at the lowest dose, people say to me, oh, I only take the lowest dose. It doesn't matter. It does seem to be, you know, all or nothing thing. So benzodiazepines work because they bind to the GABA receptor in the brain. GABA is, um, it is a neurotransmitter in its own right. But you can take actually GABA itself, which is perfectly safe, it's not going to be a risk factor for dementia. It's the pharmaceutical that's the risk factor for dementia. And so these two taken together, and there's a way to do it, or that I like anyway, that I would introduce people to. So you need a decent dose of theanine, 250 milligrams. And some of them, if you can find them, have an extra little bit of magnesium in them, which is helpful as well. The GABA... Um, they come in capsules of about 600 milligrams. And what I get people to do is to open a capsule into about 
a small amount of water, four ounces of water or so in a glass. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes people use it in warm water. It seems to work quicker. And drink half of it before bed with one thanine capsule and then put another capsule and the rest of the, the, the GABA drink beside the bed. And so if you wake, you take the extra dose. If you don't, you don't need it. So um, that works very well and it can work. I would advise people at least to be taking uh, a high quality multivitamin because that's involved in the pathways to sleep. Uh, many of the nutrients that are in there, particularly the B vitamins um, and some magnesium, they are involved in those pathways to sleep. But I'm very impressed by some of the recent research using theanine and GABA together. Well, I think that, you know, we'll probably leave it there, but uh, there's so much more to talk about with sleep and and diet, and I, I will probably address it in other podcasts to come. Um, it just seems that sleep is at the forefront. It's, it's, it's a place where we're spending a lot of time, and, you know, I like your angle on, on focusing on diet. Um, this is the last episode in, in this series of six. Um, we're going to be doing more podcasts uh, on pregnancy, on alcohol, and uh, the work-from-home diet, which, <laughs> which I think will be interesting to discuss about. So thank you, Aileen, uh, for this. And uh, there will be more podcasts. And if you've listened to this, this six-part series, you'll know that there's other podcasts you can look at. So thank you, Aileen. Thank you, Gavin. I've enjoyed them very much. For more information on Aileen, her work, and her books, go to her website, aileenburfordmason.ca. That's aileenburfordmason, three words, dot C-A. Thanks for listening and see you soon. <laughs>